0: There was a, in an interview with uh, the Washington Post. It was time to a very high-level summit on com- how to combat poverty. And Harvard professor Robert Putman made an assertion about organized religion, its agenda and its use of its resources. He says this. The obvious fact is that over the last 30 years, most organized religion has focused on issues regarding sexual morality, such as abortion, gay marriage, and all those. And I'm not saying if that's good or bad. But that's what they've been using all their resources for. This is the most obvious point in the world. It's been entirely focused on issues of homosexuality, contraception, and not at all focused on the issues of poverty. Wow. Let me make a comment about that statement because it's quite a judgment. Let me be very subtle in my comment on the statement. The statement's utter nonsense to the point of absurdity. The evidence is overwhelming. It's not even a debate Canadian and American churches are incredibly generous in the needs of a hurting world. As noted by the Philanthropy Roundtable, it said this, In 2009, overseas relief and development supported by American churches exceeded $13 billion, according to path-breaking calculations by the Hudson Center for Global Prosperity. That compares to $5 billion sent by foundations in the same year, $6 billion from private and voluntary relief organizations, and $9 billion donated by corporations. The $13 billion in religious overseas philanthropy also compares impressively to the $29 billion of official development aid handed out by the federal government in 2009. In 2012 alone, the evangelical release group World Vision spent roughly $2.8 billion annually to care for the poor that would rank World Vision 12th within the G20 nations in terms of overseas development assistance. That's just one organization. World Vision is only one such major evangelical ministry. Samaritan Purse, Food for the Hungry, uh, World Relief. They have comparable numbers, all Christian organizations. The Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability found that more than 600 evangelical ministries represented in, in the ECFA provide more than $9.2 billion in relief assistance. Catholic ministries, too, here and abroad are vibrant. About 57% or $97 billion, goes to health care networks, followed by 28% on colleges with parish and diocesan day to day operations. David French, who is a writer, An attorney with the American Center for Law and Justice comments on the issue and he says this, I chuckle when I hear the common critique of the religious and secular left. Evangelicals are obsessed with gays and abortion. The criticism is so common that it's often internalized and adopted by the church itself. It is pure and simple, a talking point, and it's false, demonstrably false. It's always intrigued me, people's characterizations of the Church of Christ and who they are and what they're like. It's always interesting to get the comments and feedback, and you go, that that doesn't describe us at all. And when we contrast the work these groups do with respect to same-sex marriage, sanctity of life, and so forth, it's a tiny fraction. In some cases, maybe not enough. This does not even factor in the role churches play in their local communities from clothing closets, food distribution, driving the elderly to medical appointments, etc. Believers nationwide, animated by their faith, are bearing both public and deeply personal witness to the love of the Savior that they profess. Mr. Putnam may be a fine political scientist, but he needs a little remedial education in arithmetic. And yet there are many just like him who share a similar view. You look at most of the critics of Christianity and of of the church of Jesus Christ and they have no clue what really happens. And yet if we look at the real evidence, it's overwhelming the generosity that is evident. There's a reason for the generosity of the church. It's part of its DNA. Giving is intrinsic to our faith and it's modeled by Jesus himself. It even comes with the promise of an even greater blessing. So this morning, I want to look at a passage of Scripture that gets us to the heart of why Christians give as we look at the question, why should I give to God and His work? And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11 for our response, and it says this. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, but not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for the food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result and thanksgiving to God let's break that down a little bit as we ponder the question why should I give to God and his work and the first response that we will note from this passage is this sowing bountifully leads to reaping bountifully this is a regular thing with scripture it's been said that you can't outgive God but the context helps us better understand these verses first we must understand what united and motivated the early church The early church was noted for its care of its people. It was a response from Jesus who said in John 13, 34 and 35, he said, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so we must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now he expands on this in a a few chapters later, in chapter 15, starting at verse 9, he says this, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this love each other as I have loved you, and greater man has no man than this to, that, to lay down his life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command: love one another. Now let's go back to First Corinthians passage and see how this all fits in, because Titus is coming to a collection to help the impoverished church in Macedonia as Paul wrote this passage he's given it in chapter 8 he gives the context in today's passage in 2 Corinthians 9 we see a perfect example of the early church living out the command that Christ said to love one another the region of Macedonia was going through a severe drought and was facing severe poverty and unlike today where we have at least some safety nets the believers of that region were struggling just to eat Paul wanted to address this problem by taking a collection to help those struggling believers. And in the letter, he's giving them advance notice so they can save and collect and have a pool of money so that when Titus comes, it'll be available and they can provide the assistance. He was sending a very honest and committed disciple of Jesus with a team of people to to take the money and put it to the right places. And Paul spends the last chapter letting them know how the money would be managed wisely because obviously that's an important question. Paul has asked them to give generously like the model set by Jesus. Notice he said this, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that's referring to God or Jesus, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. God provides for each of us everything that we have. Everything that we have comes from God. He even gave his son Jesus to provide for our greatest need, which is a spiritual need. And with great giving comes a great reward, according to what Paul's saying here. So Paul is using a farming analogy to demonstrate how we reap what we sow. You reap what you sow, but you reap an abundance to what you sow. That's a great analogy. Now, as a child, my father used to be kind of a hobby farmer. Well, the farm wasn't big enough to support the family. He had another job, but he liked farming, and he did it, and we had all the equipment from years past. And we had about an 80-acre farm in what is now part of Virginia Beach, Virginia. And I can remember that one of the barns we had was a seed barn. So if you've ever done any farming, you know what seed barns are. They're dedicated just to keep the seed dry and separated and everything else. And I remember the seed barn. And uh, we grew soybeans and black-eyed peas and corn. And I can remember each bin where it was stored and it was carefully separated. And my father with each harvest put around 10% of the seed of the crop for seed and when the appropriate time came he would plant it and I remember later at the time of harvest sitting on the back of the combine watching as the corn for instance came into the truck bed following behind the combine and the corn would just keep coming and coming and coming that far exceeded the seed that we had in the seed barn No comparison, in fact. I don't know how many truckloads he took to the mill, but one thing I did know is that it exceeded many times over the amount of seed he had used from the barn. It's also true of our giving. God blesses us far beyond what we give. The blessing may be material, but that is secondary to the much greater blessing, which is emotional and spiritual, as we see what God uses it for. Now, when you were in middle school or high school, you were probably introduced to what was called the Archimedes Principle. I remember it, maybe you don't, I just remember it. A long, long time ago, Archimedes, an old Greek guy, examined why rocks sink and battleships don't. Think about it. You can take something comparable weight, one will sink and the other doesn't. Rocks had been sinking and battleships had been floating for years and years before he ever came along, but he was the first person to explain the phenomena or a formula with a mathematical question. Archimedes discovered the relationship between buoyancy and gravity. According to his principle, the buoyant force is equal to the displaced liquid. I like that formula. You know, I just think about it all the time. Not, I don't. Just one of those things that makes sense when you think about it. He discovered that a weight could be supported in a liquid if the weight of the object was counterbalanced by the displacement of the water of the object. The point of all this is that Archimedes didn't invent the principle. He discovered it. People have been leveraging this principle uh, ever since to create massive multi-thousand ton chip and pieces of equipment. They have learned how to make them float, these big massive things that are of massive weight and you could ask the question, well why don't they sink and they float because of the Archimedes principle. The principle is not good or bad, it just is. People can leverage it for positive things or they can ignore it and oftentimes, there's a consequence. That's the nature of the principle. It's like me as a kid, I would build myself a little boat and I'd put it in the water and sink all the time. And i go, what's going on here? Well, as I look older, I kind of go, oh, well, maybe that's why I didn't follow the principle very well. No, I've never met anyone who thinks that God is in heaven indiscriminately deciding what sinks and floats. He says, this rock will float and this rock will float, but this one will sink. This ship will sink. This one will float. It's not indiscriminate. You know when you build a boat, it's going to float fact i think we have a lake here called floating stone lake don't we i don't know how that works but anyway i've seen the sign when you drive by it i've never met anyone who prayed god we have created this ship and we ask that you help it float because we don't have any clue if it will or will not i would never want to get on a boat that an engineer had that mindset when he built it we don't think that way because we understand the principle if we adhere to the principle What we make will float every single time. God created a principle, and we leverage it all the time. You can leverage it and benefit from it, or you can ignore it, and you can pay a price. Now, Paul speaks here of a different principle in our passage today. It's one you've heard before, and it easily slides into the periphery of our thinking. The principle is this. People reap what they sow. But Paul indicates that we even reap greater or in excess of what we sow. It's a promise. It gives us hope. Or it can be a sad sight if what's always bad and you reap something that's not so good. But the blessing far exceeds that which you put into it. There's another response to our question, why should I give to God in this work that is addressed in this passage? And that is that giving to God is a matter of a grateful heart. Giving is something we purpose in our heart. There's a key principle of Christian living that is given here in, the, in, in verse 7. It says, make up your mind. In one translation, it says, but purpose in your heart. I believe that second one's a little more accurate. Purpose in your heart what you will give. In other words, giving to God and neighbor is a matter of the heart, something deep within us. Christian giving, which is generous and sacrificial, requires forethought and planning. It's purposeful. We must begin now for the next year or the coming time to anticipate our income and decide how much we will give are other expenses and obligations around that stewardship commitment. It's much easier that way. The Good Samaritan in Luke ten helped the man who was robbed because as it says there uses an interesting word there, he had compassion. It is the Greek word phoskinista. It literally means from his guts or deep within. He gave out of something that was deep within himself. And my guess is the Good Samaritan had helped because he had purposed or planned ahead so that when he saw someone in need he was going to help but it also says this This is another key concept of scripture about giving it says God loves a cheerful giver Christian ethics never says just do it it's a large command just do it do not expect it nothing else matters obeying God is always an act of love for the believer or should be It is a response to God's incomprehensible love for us. We are told here, God loves a cheerful giver, not just a giver. It matters what the heart feels. All commands are a matter of demonstrating our love for God, our joy for God. God doesn't want mere willpower obedience. I'm doing it because I'm obligated to do it. In this passage, there's only one imperative, and that is that each person will give as he has decided in his own heart and that he will do it cheerfully. Christian leader, Gordon MacDonald shared the following story about how God transformed him from giving as merely an institutional obligation to being a cheerful giver. He says this, and I'm quoting from his book, The process began when my wife Gail and I made a mission trip to West Africa. On the first Sunday of our visit, we joined a large crowd of desperately poor Christians for worship. And as we neared the church, I noticed that almost every person was carrying something. Some hoisted cages of noisy chickens, others carried baskets of yams, and still others toted bags of eggs or bowls of cassava paste. Why are you bringing all that stuff? I asked one of our hosts. Watch, she said. And almost every person in that African congregation brought something, a chicken, a basket of yams, a bowl of cassava paste. And I saw that giving, whether yams or dollars, is not optional for Christian followers. Soon after the worship began, the moment came when everyone stood and poured into the aisles singing and clapping and even shouting, and the people began coming forward, each in turn bringing whatever they had brought to the space in front. Then I got it. This was West African offering time. The chickens would help others get a tiny farm business started. The yams and the eggs would give could be sold in the marketplace to help the needy. The cassava paste would guarantee someone who was hungry could eat. I was captivated. I'd never seen a joyful offering before. Obviously, my keep money under the radar policy would not have worked in that West African church. And those African believers, although they never knew it, had moved me. I began to understand that giving, whether yams or dollars, was not an option for Christ's followers. Rather, it was an indication of the direction and the tenor of one's whole life. I think he's right on the money. You see, giving and the attitude with which we do it is one of the signs of our spiritual depth it's an indicator of where we stand before god in fact in our vision our vision at bonneville baptist church is to turn unchurched families into fully devoted followers of jesus we have what's called the five g's grace growth groups gifts giving the five g's that we want to move people through that process of growth the last one is the g the giving we give of our worship we give of our praise of our time, of our resources. They go together. It's a sign that we have grown to the point where our faith reflects our most important values. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19-21, do not store up yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is will be also. They're tied together. Let me give you one last response to the question, why should I give to God His work? And that is this, generous giving reflects and produces thankfulness. In verses 8 to 11, we've already read them, so I'll just comment on them. And that is this, God blesses materially and spiritually. Notice what God said in verse 10 and 11. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through your generosity will result in thankfulness to God. God supplies us with the seed and all the things necessary. When all is said and done, there will be a harvest of far greater proportions and it will lead to thankfulness. God gives us a blended blessing and when we give, we are blessed even more. The blessings he gives allows us to be generous. If you go to Israel... Some of you have been there before. There's a lake there, or they call it the sea, called the Dead Sea. Anybody ever heard of the Dead Sea in Israel? Maybe Most of you probably have. They call it Dead Sea for the reason, because it's dead. Nothing can live in it. There's no fish. In fact, all you really do at the Dead Sea that draws you there is you go bobbing in the Dead Sea. In other words, the mineral content is so high you can only float. You can't swim in it. Ironically, it has a fresh flow of water feeding into it constantly, but it has no outlet so the reason it does not fill up is that it evaporates under the hot desert sun and so it doesn't fill up too deeply even though it has that flow of water from the Jordan River and all the deposits build up and it creates this thick, dense, dead water the Dead Sea is a wonderful illustration of what we become if we have no outlet to give if all we're doing is taking and taking and taking and there's no outlet there's no giving we're dead God blesses us we have a fresh resource of water, so to speak, that he provides and addresses our needs. But unless we have an outlet, spiritually, we are empty and we are dead. But we also learn that our generosity will result in thankfulness to God. Later, we note the exuberance, the enthusiasm which, which the people gave. It's later in the chapter. I won't read it right now. But it talks about how God is blessed and rewarded. But think of what it would look like if it had said this, the people gave grudgingly if I read the thrust of the passage correctly everybody said God's love has been so great and his blessing so plentiful I want to be a giver I will give generously joyfully cheerfully and enthusiastically that's the thrust of the passage and that's the thrust of the verse generous giving leads to thankfulness the gospel of Jesus Christ turns men and women from takers into givers and the generosity cuts across the whole sweep of their life in this case the generosity speaks specifically to their offering now as Christians as we come to the Christmas season, we're reminded of one of the most famous stories of the season. I'm not talking biblical stories, a lot of the famous ones. I want to refer outside. It's the story of Charles Dickens called The Christmas Carol. You ever see it? I doubt there's a person in this room who has not seen or heard of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. It is a classic. Everybody knows it. Everybody understands You know the story. The main character is this guy named Ebenezer Scrooge. In fact, his name has become part of our language Oh, he's a Scrooge. It comes out of the book. His name has become an icon of our language. Scrooge was a bitter spendthrift who had little love for others and only valued money and just hoarded and hoarded. And only after visits from three spirits does he see his selfishness and his emptiness and changes to become a happier man of joy and generosity. He's a bitter old man before and at the end he's delighting and jumping and happy and generous in what he does. Generosity and cheerfulness go hand in hand. It's the most generous and caring people who are the happiness. I believe God designed it that way because that is how God is himself. He gives boldly and generously and we enjoy his greatness and his pleasure and it becomes part of who we are. This morning we asked the question, why should I give to God? And we learned that we should purposely choose to give cheerfully because it will bless us and lead to thankfulness because God has already done so much. Harvard professor Robert Putman, who I open with, it's like many others who accuse the church of obsessing and spending over issues like abortion and gay marriage and all those. And frankly, I'll be honest with you, I don't even see the topic addressed that much in church. And maybe it should even be addressed more. I don't know. My point being, it's not what he envisions it to be. And so that's all we think about and discuss. And yet, when you look at the very clear and objective data, we find that the church gives an impressive amount to helping people in need and in their communities. It's all part of our faith. It begins with God himself, and it was evidenced in the early church just as it is today. So let me kind of tie this together. We are nearing the end of the year, and we depend on the year of end giving to help us carry through our slower months. For whatever reason, we're all motivated to give a little more at the end of the year. We as a church depend on that. We work on tight margins, and that giving all helps us through the leaner times. We're talking about building right now. We're talking about buying the Ackland Grangers building. We're still in negotiations with that. We've put it in another bid and offers come back. We still have more negotiations to proceed with. We'll talk about that as we, we have more to, to give to you. But I have to remind you that although we're talking about raising money for a building, we cannot forget our general fund account, that we work on a tight margin. We still need to pay our bills. We still need to keep our ministries going. God has blessed this church tremendously, even during this economic downturn. We have not had to cut any ministries, any staff, anything. We have been so privileged that way, and thank you for your generosity. But let's be aware that as we come to the end of the year... That extra money, if we could raise an extra 10000 or 20000 which is not a lot if everybody just contributes a little more over and above the normal giving, we can put us in a healthy position to end the year well. And then as we can look in the building program, of which we still have a fund set up for, if you would like to give to that as well. And we will mention each week what we're trying to do and where we stand on this goal of finishing well because it's important that if we can end this year well, that we will be in good position to look forward to our other ministries in the future. Now, let's close with a story. It's a common assumption that kids today care more about getting than giving. But in an emotional viral video, kids show that while they may love Lego sets and Xbox gaming systems, they love their parents a whole lot more. In the video, children from low-income backgrounds are presented with a gift for themselves and a gift for their parents. And then they're told they must choose between the two. And video maker Rob Bliss says 80% of the kids interviewed chose to give their parents a gift instead of keeping the toys that they offered. They had learned the value of what giving is. Let's take a look at that video. And then Ben will close this.